0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey.
1: And I'm Robert Diamant.
0: And this is Talk Art.
1: Welcome to Talk Art.
0: How are you today, Rob?
1: Today, Russell, I can feel my heartbeat. Cute. And I have just come back from a, a holiday, a kind of retreat, if you will. And it's got me thinking a lot about uh, how important it is for self care and to. Um, in a world where we we exist kind of with a new limb, which is a telephone or a screen or a tablet or something, um, mm-hmm. or even our computers, um, it seems to have become a new dimension, like a new body part almost. And it really got me thinking on my holiday when I was looking up at the sky a lot about how we all have to slow down and the importance of human interaction. And I went away with one of my friends and we d- were just talking loads and kind of spending more time than we would normally together. And it was really special because you start to realize the importance Importance of human interaction and actually being in the real world but having said all that technology is such an important part of our life now and i think it's brilliant the way brands and different uh, companies are starting to modernize in a way that includes the human interactions and today's guest is working at the moment with somebody that we love very much, BMW, and also Super Blue. Oh, yeah. We're going to be uh, discussing an incredible new immersive art installation called Pulse Topology. It's going to be debuting in Basel, Switzerland, and I'll actually be going out there myself. I cannot wait in June. Um, so for everyone listening, if you're visiting the art fair at Art Basel, you too will be able to experience this incredible um, visionary artwork. Well, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in the episode with our guests. So... We would like to welcome to Talk Art Raphael lozano Hema. Hema. Hi, Raphael.
2: Hi,
0: Raphael. Hey. Rafael.
2: Cheers. Thanks for having me. Of
0: course. It's Where are you here. in the world? Because you're based in Montreal and Madrid. Where do we find you now?
2: I, I'm in Montreal. I just uh, came back from New York.
0: How was, how was that in New York? Was you, was you there for pleasure or was you there for work?
2: Yeah, I have a, a project at the Brooklyn Museum. There, it's a COVID memorial, and uh, so in keeping with what Robert was saying about the fragility of life and and just trying to uh, you know live at the fullest. Uh, we made a project to memorialize the 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 loss that we've had with COVID, and uh, I went there to give a talk together with other uh, people on mourning memorials and the role of art and all of that.
0: This is um, Hourglass twenty twenty one that you're talking about. Yeah, this, right, I yeah. mean this work sounds incredible. It it kind of um, from from reading it. I haven't seen it, obviously, but it's the the faces of of the victims of COVID are drawn in sand, but in an hourglass sand, and they, and they appear as a memorial. And that yeah, as you said, that's currently a Brooklyn Museum, and it it plays into this kind of. Th- there's an illusionary quality to all of the projects that you you work on. You, you create art that seems to be at the intersection of of technology and art and this seems to be one of these projects that is you know very incredibly moving but very awe-inspiring and makes you consider the possibilities of what we're able to achieve.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that one of the challenges of our time is in a. we all live in a technological culture. Um, data and big data basically runs our life, our economy, our war, our relationships. And so um, for me, what's interesting as a challenge is how can we use this technology to you know, make evident these invisible worlds. Uh, for example, with COVID in the United States, they just reached a million victims. And it's so difficult to, you know, put a face behind such an abstract number, right? And so I think one of the challenges of working with data is to make evidence, to make tangible, to materialize what's happening, slow it down. Um, the project is basically a very slow uh, drawing of this faces using uh, our glass and... Uh, the faces are sent by family or friends into a website at net. And then the slowness of the project is meant to be a ritual um, that allows you to sort of observe mourning And most importantly, once the project is finished, once the particular likeness appears from the sand, uh, we tilt the robotic platform where the uh, drawing was made, and we um, gravity pulls all the sand to have it recovered and recycled. So all the hundreds of portraits that we've made is made with the same small amount of sand. And that's important because it's kind of like a message of continuity. So art is good at mourning and observing loss and and expressing grief, but it's also good at sort of, you know, celebrating the fact that we're still here, that um, the majesty of all of these different um, likenesses emerging from the same small amount of sand, uh, just, I don't know, I guess it gives us a bit of reference, um, you know, that 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 is needed right now.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's so easy I think, especially when you're digesting news, like global news, you know, through an app or through just a, a telephone or something. It's so easy just to not really take it in the actual impact of what all these numbers mean. I mean, and the and the lives and the you know, even positive stories. I mean, it's a fascinating kind of development, really. Um, And our society now and our interactions are becoming increasingly digital, like, as I said in the introduction. And for your artistic practice, human centricity has always been really essential. And for this new interaction with, you know, bringing together kind of humans with technology for your project in Basel. I know it was also a concern for BMW themselves, you know, with their new i7 electric car and this idea of somehow modernizing cars as well. How did you begin this project with, with them for Basel?
2: Well, for about 30 years, my, my practice has been about that, about the idea of giving, um, an artwork, the capability to see and feel and hear the public through sensors, um, through different display, you know, sort of, um, uh, techniques. And the artwork has an awareness. It has a sentience. It has, if you will, like uh, the capability to respond, uh, hopefully intelligently or at least poetically, to what it sees around it. And so the the idea of the artwork as an incomplete uh, experience that can only truly exist once participation happens has been in my work for a really long time. Mm. And I think um, in talking to BMW, I mean, there, I had an opportunity to see this this car. Um, it's itself full of sensors. It's itself full of awareness. And interestingly, the awareness is not just toward the outside. You know, are there obstacles? Are there? Is the road uh, going in this direction? Like you know, like all autonomous cars, eventually will have a massive technology to the outside. But also to the inside, you know. Well, what is the 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 driver doing? Are they distracted? Um, you know, can we create an environment that is curated to ensure that they have a, a pleasant experience? Um, I think that those are really interesting phenomena. You know, like how do we how do we create experiences that that can be shared, that can, on the not really retreat us, because there's a level of retreat, but also connect us to reality, right? Like, um, I've always thought that art shouldn't necessarily be, um, Henry Matisse said, it art should be a comfortable armchair well i think that it should be an armchair that helps you also lights a fire under your bum because i think that we're living in a in a reality that needs to be acted upon as a citizen as someone who is very interested in social activism i think that um people need to be given an agency and responsibility toward their surroundings and so in that sense um Intelligence needs to go to the to the outside, to the social, but also to mm-hmm. the inside, to the passengers, and uh, and have the artwork in in uh, you know belaboring the connection between the car and the art is not is not necessarily very productive. But I would say that this human centric uh, kind of design that BMW is doing does have uh, a connection to the practice that I've been having. Myself and many other artists, of course, this is, you know, I'm part of uh, a long tradition of uh, experimentation with interactivity, participation and 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 incompleteness.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, definitely. Like you mentioned, uh, being part of that lineage, but no artists like Olafur Eliasson, Dan Flavin, James Turrell, Turrell, sorry, Jenny Holzer. Throughout the years, they've used technology. And I think a lot of people have been scared of technology. I myself, you know, we do have phones and, and, and I'm very analog. The digital does sort of scare me. But you always throughout your practice have seen the positivity of technology as a place of retreat or reflection of, of social connection. And you're saying the way that we can mm. connect and the way that art connects us. But you take it to this other level, which is this uh, intersection of uh, humanity and technology through art. Mm.
2: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would say I, I studied, I'm a Mexican originally, but I live in Canada. And here in Canada for 50 years, we've been thinking about what McLuhan said, right? McLuhan said that technology is a second skin. It is not a tool. It's something that is more like a language, something that we can't be separated from. So, for example, I don't know in Europe, but here in Canada, eight hours a day, an average person spends eight hours a day on their screen, be it phone, internet, or TV. So what is, what would we be like without technology? We don't know because it's a fundamental part of who we are today. And the, the idea then is let's work with technology not because it's new or because it offers us originality or new possibilities. I hate it when people say, oh, this is, you know, infinite possibilities. A canvas can give you infinite possibilities. So it's not, that's not the reason to work with technology. To work with technology is because if it is an inherent part of who we are right now, it's really to investigate ourselves, right? It's an inevitable part of our society. So I think that, that artists embrace technology because, um, it's impossible not to because it's part of whom we are. And uh, our 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 challenge is to create something that's connective, poetic, critical um, out of that technology as opposed to something that is controlling surveillance, uh, you know, society of metrics, fake news and all the other problems that technology brings with it. So neither optimistic nor pessimistic it's just sort of trying to 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 ensure that technology is perverted from the original intent that it had which is usually to control people
0: it's a tech sweet spot you're looking for yeah yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> and how how has um how has Montreal like impacted your work what's the art scene like there because when I was in my uh teenage years when I was about 15 16 I used to be in Montreal a lot all the way through until my early 20s I used to come back very regularly for music because me, the music scene there was like amazing with people like Annie DeFranco and Rufus Wainwright and Ember Swift and all these kind of underground rock bands at the time who have now become much more famous but what, what's it like with the art scene because I've never really experienced the art scene in Montreal
2: um it's 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 a good town it's a mid-sized town good shows come and go there's a lot of uh, great artists for me specifically what montreal is great for is it has as you said a big tradition of performing arts music but also theater and dance and um and i keep thinking of my practice not so much as visual arts as more as performing arts i Mm. feel like i'm the director of a group of I, i work with 25 people and so i kind of curate different specialists who help me realize the projects and i think of it very event-driven like performance. Um And so there's that kind of tradition of on stage. And then there's also uh, a lot of nerds. So we have a lot of universities, (laughs) a lot of people uh, like myself who are interested in math and algorithms. And so it's a really great, great space to produce work because um, it's moderately inexpensive compared to other cities. So we have space. Also, Canada, as you may know, has a superb support for the arts um, in terms of grants and tax breaks and so on. So I feel really, really lucky to 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 be able to be in this environment
0: um, yeah i think and i really respond amazing, to your oh, gun sorry rob
1: sorry. and also the amazing light shows and uh, jazz festivals and even like the amazing rock band tragically hip there was like i always remember it being this very generous culture of creativity but at that point i was solely focused on music but has, has music like inspired you at all like because i know jazz is so popular in montreal
2: Oh, very much so, yeah. And the traditions go deep, right? Like Oscar Peterson, incredible yes. jazz pianist, uh, all the way to today. I mean, and and what's interesting too is people think about jazz, but then there's also uh, electronic music, uh, electroacoustic, like classical, contemporary. Uh, yeah, there's 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 quite a bit. I like I like that there's a public, so it's a city that has the creators, but sometimes you feel like. Why are we doing this? Uh, and the important thing is to be able to present it at a platform like a festival, and Montreal has tons. So it's a really good um, town to be also on the receiving end of all of that creation. Um, yeah, music has always been important to my, my practice. Uh, I'm the son of nightclub owners, actually, from Mexico. And uh, there were salsa and nightclubs. Um, and I remember I used to hate salsa until I moved to Canada, and then I just said, oh, no, this is good stuff. <laughs> so I'm now a, a salsa DJ, and uh, and uh, it's important for me, music in, in all sense. I, and often I collaborate with composers, um, you know, in previous projects. Right now I'm doing one project with a British fellow, uh, Robin Rimbo Scanner, and, um, and, you know, I respect very much the people who can actually, um, you know, be creative in music. I, I sure can't.
0: Yeah. So much of your work responds to uh, public participation. Is there, what what are the kind of pros and cons of that that you need the public to activate your work mm-hmm. and to bring it to life?
2: Well, first of all, it's humbling, right? Because if no one shows up, the piece doesn't exist, and it's kind of devastating. Um, So there is quite a bit of uh, of work that you need to do to make sure that people arrive on location and that they can encounter the work. One of the things that we often do, for example, fifty percent of my practice is in public space. So I work in plazas, I work in in you know outdoors, and uh, we try for these projects to be in the quotidian space, right? We don't want them to take a bus to go see the project somewhere in the distance mm. because then they're expecting firework displays or some kind of show, whereas these pieces are closer to fountains, right? All, there's no beginning and no end. They're constantly changing. And in that sense, um, for me, yeah, the possibility that there's nobody is is brutal because then the project doesn't develop. Mm. Um, another thing that happens is the possibility for the artwork to have an interpretation that is different that you that you expected right this oftentimes i've made very mournful pieces which end up being super playful and i kind of like that it's like it's not up to me to determine what the outcome is going to be is more like a surprise like an experiment where something will happen you don't really know what and and that's 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 something that i really appreciate at the moment when you launch a project will you just step back
0: yeah right well no t- talking about a somber artwork there was a work you made in 2019 called uh, border tuna which yeah. I'd love you to talk a bit about because it was this interactive light bridge that went either side of the Mexico-US border which is obviously very controversial during the Trump uh, campaign so um, can you talk a bit about that project?
2: Yeah sure um, so the cities of El Paso and Juarez are sister cities a uh, hundred years before the United States you know arrived. That was already El Paso del Norte uh, community. And uh, the fact is that there's 70% of the people on either side have families on the other side. So fast forward to Trump and the adversarial racist regime of separation, um, although this started before Trump. But now there is a wall and this wall separates people. And when I first thought, let's do a project in the US-Mexico border, I thought, Uh, let's address the the wall and nobody there wanted me to address the wall they I had meetings with lots of artists and stakeholders in both communities and they're like we're sick of the wall do something that is more about the two communities being in fact intertwined Um, and so Mm. the project basically was massive bridges of light made with 10,000 watt Uh, xenon searchlights. Um, The bridges of light worked as follows. There were six stations, three in Mexico and three in the US, and you had a little dial so that uh, in each of the stations, you could actually control where the lights were pointing at. So as you tuned it, it would scan the horizon, penetrate the airspace of the opposing country. And when my lights and your lights intersected in midair, the computer would open a bidirectional channel of communication so that you could hear me and I could hear you. So the lights would bling, uh, glimmer a little bit like uh, Morse code and if I could hear you we could have a really nice conversation now if I didn't like what you were saying I could just tune you out and look for somebody else um, so it was it was really about listening how do we listen to each other um, through these massive bridges of light and uh, for you know the couple weeks that the project was live every night we got tens of thousands of people coming to the border, not for division, but as a place to meet. Um, and so people, Yay. families, families that were separated were reunited. We had lots oh. of uh, uh, singing and a lot of uh, memorial things. And then we also had, uh, you know, people flirting, for example. So it was it was just lovely to create a platform where people would, uh, would, would, be in touch with each other and very importantly that this platform was out of my control no one was selling you anything there was nothing uh, to do other than just speak to strangers on the other side of the border and um the project was really really successful in that sense it was it were, a lot of really
0: interesting conversations came out is it temporary was it what was the legalities of that
2: Yeah, the the legalities were it was difficult because imagine going as a Mexican to ask uh, Homeland Security to allow me to bring in 200,000 watts of power (laughs) and and point to point microwave antennas pointed straight into the U.S. In the end, they let me do it. And uh, honestly, that's also part of the project. You know, how do you negotiate for these? you know, governments, authorities to to allow this kind of connection to happen. The honest truth is we all have an understanding of the border that is given by characters like Trump but in the field the people there know that the two cities are connected environmentally historically economically fraternally mm-hmm. so they 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 want to make see this happen they see themselves in relation to to the other and i think that that's uh, is wonderful to highlight you know and also to try and create something that is not just about violence and about division and about racism all of that exists but also to create about you know the communities that live there are creative they're doing amazing work and so we worked with a lot of local artists to make sure that they felt represented and that the project was really you know uh, paying a homage to to people who and stories that have been forgotten.
1: So brilliant yeah. and um, in a way that leads really interestingly into your new project in, in Art Basel because that also has thousands of light bulbs, I think maybe 6,000 right. or so. And it's also following on from the history that you're so well-known for now of kind of um, a participatory, sorry, a participatory... um <laughs> Particip... I can't say it. For, oh God. for That you're known for, a participatory <laughs> installation Um Often um, using the actual visitors' own like heartbeats or their breath or their voice or their fingerprints, and that's actually what activates the artwork. Their kind of real-time biometric data. Um, so, can you speak a bit about how this this project has come to be with these six thousand light bulbs?
2: Sure. So, um, for about uh, almost twenty years, I've been making artworks out of heartbeats. So, the story, real quick, is my wife was pregnant with twins. I learned that the ultrasound machine could let you hear the heart of the baby. And being a nerd, I asked for two ultrasound machines so that we could listen simultaneously to the heartbeat of the boy and the heartbeat of the girl. And they were completely different. They were making this kind of syncopated, uh, minimalist music. It was kind of this repetitive things that go in and out of phase. And I thought, okay, we need to grab this and make it into a massive choir with everybody's heartbeats, um, you know, sort of syncopating in a room. So that project I did, uh, yeah, almost 20 years ago. And since then, I've been making all kinds of different uh, water fountains and chandeliers and, and different types of rooms that capture the heartbeat of people. For Basel, what we're doing is is we're basically... I would say almost like the culmination of everything that we've researched in the past 20 years comes to this project, because on the one hand, it has a massive scale. As you said, it's 6,000 incandescent light bulbs that are suspended. Um, They're suspended, creating labyrinths of uh, upside down crests and valleys so that it's very immersive in that way and you kind of traverse the topology. Um, but most importantly, there are six sensors that uh, use computer vision to detect your heartbeat. So you put your hand under one of these sensors. The computer does an electrocardiogram of your of your of your heartbeat, just basically looking at coloration of your skin, because the camera can detect when blood flows. And then we convert that into a heartbeat recording, which pushes the oldest recording. So think of this 6,000 light bulbs as each representing a different person from the past. And every time a new recording gets added, an old one gets removed. And crucially, we also do the sound. So when no one's participating, you see and hear the past 6,000 heartbeats. And for those of you who like, like subwoofers, or I love bass. It's maternal. So we've got like this massive subwoofers that just beam the 6,000 heartbeats. It's, it's, very, it's a rumble that's very robust. But when you put your own hand, you hear your own heartbeat. You hear it in relation to everybody else who's live. Wow. So the sound component is a, is a big part of it, too. And the project again is, is, it 's all recordings uh, of people who have uh, decided to participate.
0: Wow, I love the fact what? that you say you love bass it 's maternal. You have this absolute <laughs> like way of describing you know electronic you 're an electronic artist, but the way of describing all these elements it, it's just it 's just fascinating you 're so forward thinking and you 've obviously got an incredibly scientific and mathematical brain, as you said, and you 're a nerd for it. How did you then translate that into art? How did art come along? And you went, hang on a minute, I'm obsessed with all these algorithms, but let me make you know, a, a, a sculpture out of this. It's,
2: uh, it, I, I had a lot of friends who were composers, choreographers, musicians, writers, and I noticed that I had no talent in any specialty. So I kind of became the director of a small group of theater that we had. And I would just basically tell people what to do. I could program, so I programmed some stuff. Um, Then fast forward to just understanding that the theatrical could stay in an artwork, right? Like we had one of my very, very first artworks was uh, a human eye that would follow the choreographer anywhere she went on stage. And um, at the end of the performance, we'd invite the public to try it. And that's when that fourth wall would come down and you'd realize people had been thinking that it was rehearsed, that she was just walking and the eye would follow her. But the moment they tried it and it followed them, it had an additional impact. So that's when I decided these things can live in museums or festivals and the public will be the actor or the dancer. It's the public that will activate the pieces. So
0: coming out of science... It's been described as technological theatre that you work in. That's your technological theatre, which is something I love. And that that is obviously a description right there of, of how you're bringing the right. human, human side of, you know, I, I'm an actor, the humanity of an actor or a performer, but then mixing that with technology and performance.
2: But- but you have to know that technological theater was a ironic and b dystopian. So the the performances were always based <laughs> on the on the concept of the promise of technology. Like the actors, they would tell you how great this is going to be, and there would be like this pitch about how this is going to empower people and all these things. And then gradually, everything went wrong. Because what I like um, is is a kind of sense that that. There is nothing neutral, nothing natural about this that we need to question it right that we can't just let it you know give it a free rein on 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 our life um at the end of the performances, all technological theaters ended with an apology and uh telling people that they should have gone to a movie um it it, it, it was it was a it was a device that we created to sort of betray some of the expectations we have about technology emancipating us or something like that. I think that that's, um, right. you know, BS. Right, right,
1: right. <laughs> and you, you actually recently went to Munich to the BMW headquarters and you actually got to meet yeah. some of the engineers and designers behind their new um, electric car, the i7. Can you speak a bit yeah. about that experience of going to Germany?
2: For sure. Um so when Superblue first said, "Hey, let's you know, let's work with with BMW," I thought this is great. Uh, what I'm most interested in is the engineers and designers. Um, the car itself is lovely, but I don't particularly have a fetish about cars. But I do have a fetish about, you know, like I said, algorithms, about aesthetics, and about uh, making things possible. So meeting the engineers and designers and starting this collaboration with them was great. I mean, first of all, the, the access is is wonderful. Um, understanding what their, our differences are. So when they make a mistake in their design, someone might die. <laughs> Whereas in my case, you know, I can make as many mistakes as I want. They create cars over periods of years. We develop pieces very swiftly. So it was nice to see those differences. And then also, for example, on in terms of what we enjoyed doing Together is, for example, the understanding of light. One of the things that I really liked about the team is they were very much into restraint. Um, I have for a long time been criticizing cities around the world for a thing is called architainment, which is, you know, all of a sudden all buildings are looking like Reno Nevada you know this emerald green goes to congo blue goes to cyan it's like no there's no world no reason for buildings to just be changing colors because we can you know we need to sh- show some restraint and we need to curate very carefully what colors are out there and this kind of passion that i have for not doing things was shared with the engineers and designers at BMW. And I think that that's what makes an elegant uh, gesture Is is what not to do. Uh, I think LEDs, the lighting diodes that now are in use in most buildings or cars are completely misunderstood. I think that we all need to you know, just go back and study some color theory, some Joseph Albers, uh, you know, to remember how to use colors, um, you know, effectively. Uh, It was nice to, to nerd out on color theory with them.
1: We we actually went ourselves to the UK headquarters recently in Farnborough, and I was really impressed just at how forward thinking everybody is. And this the the modern kind of idea of taking something so simple and everyday in a way, like, you know, driving somewhere, but turning that into a completely different experience. Were were there like connecting elements or similarities in the way that those experts at BMW thought, uh, you know, if you compare yourself to them as an artist?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's uh, I mean, first of all, we share like uh, an experimental desire to prototype and see things, you know, and and try uh, eccentric ideas to see if they will work. Uh, I like that. I like, uh, like I said, restraint and the capability to curate um, the experiences, to see them as a finite set of decisions made by experts that, then are open for the user to enjoy, but also to be able to modify. Um, I really liked, uh, for example, their, their notes on, on sustainability. So I'm the father of three climate activist teenagers, and uh, I very, like everybody else, concerned that we're living through an extinction event. And, uh, you know, when I told them I'd be working with BMW, uh, they were like, okay, but what's this about? I was like, no, no, it's to introduce a new electric car. And they're like, okay, you know, like give me a pass. But the idea (laughs) that we have to be very serious about, you know, how, how we relate to, to those, um, environmental issues are, are, are important. And, and it's important in the company. Uh, another thing that I noticed that I really liked is, um, I really liked that. The stories that they would tell me about the development of their cars when I went through the museum, they were telling me, oh, yeah, well, a worker, you know, had made the first station wagon as a prototype in his own backyard and then brought it back to us, and then we decided to start making station wagons. And I really like the idea because I'm a you know, socialist type, I really like the idea that what they were highlighting is how the workers were contributing to the development of the company's ideas. Mm. And then let's not mention names, but we know that there's other vehicle manufacturers where the messianic single director who pretends he came up with all of the ideas is what tracks every day on the new cycle, right? And then those people are... are trillionaires or whatever, or close to, they go to the moon or whatever it is that they want to do. They they actually bankrupt the idea of innovation because they pretend that it's all them. Uh, I really like how in BMW, there was that sense of distribution of creativity and design and decisions. And, uh, and that basically... I don't know if they knew I was a socialist, but they they started talking to me about their workers, and I I appreciate <laughs> that. I think that's how it should be. You know, we should not have a cult of the messianic uh, personality. Yeah, the yeah, one the one leader.
0: Do you do you have to run all of your projects by your three daughters? <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, it, yeah, some of them. Uh, it, it's it's yeah, they're they're important. I, I need I need good a good balance at home.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this so this sensory experience that you've created in in the uh, the i seven. What, how does the heartbeat play into that? Because the heartbeat from Pulse Topology and you know, your, your Pulse artwork series, how does that relate to the actual interior when you sit inside this car?
2: So um, for P- Paul's uh, topology, we developed a photoplethysmography system. And what that is, it's a technology that has existed for a while, but it's existed with very specific cameras that you find, for example, at airports, right, that measure, you know, your heartbeat through uh, just observing your skin and color skin coloration changes. What our claim to fame is well, we popularized that we made it so that it works now with very inexpensive cameras. It works with very mi- miniature kinds of cameras, and uh, the system basically allows the computer to see uh, your heartbeat. Now, the i7 already has cameras on board, and uh, it also has a display, so we could, um, as you go in, as a pa- into the passenger seats, into the back. You sit there and the computer is analyzing and understanding what your heartbeat is doing. It shows you a little electrocardiogram in the big display that they have on the back. And then through Bluetooth, it connects to the sound speaker of the car um, to generate the sound sound. The the heartbeat sounds. And then through uh, DMX, it controls lighting, environmental lighting in the car to also register the heartbeat. So it's almost as if you go into a device that is sentient, that expresses your, you know, most. you know, sort of intimate biometric, right? Like our heartbeat. I really like uh, the fact that heartbeats are involuntary spasms. I think that is wonderful that we do not control them. I think that they do tell us um, a reality that is not something that's in our brain. It's a, a, a much more primeval reality. And so the car uh, reflects this, and um, and that's the idea. It's just to extend some of the sentience that we have in pulse topology to people who go into the car. And I might say, I mean, that's only happening at Art Basel as a, you know, as a connective
0: bridge between the artwork and the car.
1: Really we gonna like end up with therapists. Like
0: sorry I was gonna say we ended up with a therapist you sit in the car and it'd be like okay hello Russell seems you're a bit stressed (laughs) today do you want to talk about that yeah I do oh my god
2: I would hate that car but you know here's the thing about the (laughs) the technology the technology that we are developing is it does actually detect um you know things like uh arrhythmias and all kinds of different cardiac problems and in the past uh you know sometimes some output is, is suspect and people ask us, uh, should I go to a cardiologist? It's like, dude, this is just art, you know, like uh, we, we can't confirm or deny. Yeah, you go to the cardiologist. Uh, but it does it does sense those kinds of arrhythmias. And when you hear those amplified into the big canopy of light or in the car, it, it does, the rest of the people who are hearing it, something that is normal to someone who lives with arrhythmia, all of a sudden you can understand how how they must feel because it's quite uneasy. So yeah, there's a level at which the information can also be medical, but we, we make no such claims. We just say, this is a, just a design art project, um, you know, consult your doctor.
1: Yeah, it's it's an, <laughs> it's left an responsibility. artistic interaction. Yeah. I love that. Mm. Um how how has sustainability actually like informed the development of your practice in more recent times? Because obviously it's a global um kind of discussion and there's and and an action as well. Like people are all coming together all over the world now. Like is sustainability something now at the core of your practice?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's something that's aspirational. I mean, I have massive um, blind spots. Like, for example, I I'm constantly on an airplane, and that continues to to this day, and so I can understand that I'm part, you know, partly complicit with what I denounce. Um, I don't have a solution yet for, for those problems. But at the studio, some of the things that we're doing is, for example, uh, when we first started doing um, the light projects, they were all incandescent light bulbs. So we're using 300 watts each. Now we have LED filament light bulbs, which are, I think, uh, average is half a watt. So you've you you know you've done a 600-fold improvement on, on your consumption. Um, Maybe one of the things that I want to do eventually is connect um, the artwork, because you could actually power the entire six thousand bulb artwork with one of the BMW, um, you know, batteries. and um, And I think that those are messages that are important because it helps us see the actual sort of impact of 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 this kind of technology. It, it allows us to see that we can have this immersive stuff without needing to to actually. You know, burn too much coal or oil or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, just in general, I mean, I'm like everybody else. Like, what I'm trying to do is keep myself informed and um, and understand that we are not, you know, we're we're we're, we're not exempt. Uh, sometimes I, I I told my daughter, it's like, oh, you know, I have so much hope because your generation this and that, and she's like, what's wrong with you? You're alive in this planet. I we need we need you to also take leadership, and um, and I think that she's right. Yeah, we are we're trying to pretend that it's somebody else's problem when it's really ours.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the next generation. They can deal with it. I'm, I'm tired. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Pass it on. Um, we mentioned, uh, super blue early. I just thought it'd be good to highlight what super blue is. Super blue is a, a groundbreaking enterprise that's dedicated to supporting artists, realizing their most ambitious visions and engaging audiences with experimental art. and, um, BMW group culture and Superblue have collaborated before and they're collaborating with you and, I I guess they have helped you realize something that's really ambitious for you this time.
2: That's right. Yeah, I I, I like one of the things I like the most about Super Blue is that they understand art not as an object, as some fossil, as something that is there forever into collection. No disrespect to that kind of art, including my own, I mean, I have my museum practice, but they understand that there is a world where art is also an experience and that it's an experience that needs to be shared. And the idea is that the work that gets underlined by Superblue tends to be ephemeral. It tends to be, it tends to act uh, not on the subject of property. It's like, well, this is your property. It's more about, you know, entering a situation, especially after social distancing, where you can meet other people, where you can experience something that is shared. And even though it sounds hippie and and a little bit um, like a platitude, I do believe that the objective of art is for people to come together. Um, the great Marxist uh, composer, Frederick Chevsky, said, "You know, this is this is what we strive for: for people with disparate backgrounds to come together under an, an artwork for discussion, for community building, for questions, for, you know, the the, the place where people can can speak and experience." Um, and I think that, yeah, Super Blue is trying to do that, and um, and I'm for
1: it. And what what would you say is the essence of a kind of successful collaboration? You know, like right now you're obviously collaborating with Superblue and BMWi, but like wh- when does a collaboration work most effectively?
2: When there's mutual respect. I find that a lot of times uh, I've turned down many collaborations with many companies. Um, and that Can you name the them?
0: Can you name any of those
1: companies? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> no. Sure, I that if you want. No, Do you no, want no, that no, Yeah, 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 yeah. it's great. <laughs>
2: No, I'll tell you one that I turned down. They wanted me to do a massive project in Washington, D.C. And I said, sure, I'll be your guy. So long as it's coinciding with a new philanthropic um, initiative that you will have to protect the real Amazon. So if it's to do that, then sure, count on me to be able to do a project together. So it's not, I mean, it sounds really pretentious and virtue signaling, but I think that artists, especially as they get older, um, they need to be more and more selective, and they need to, you know, to the maximum extent of their ability, stay true to their messages, uh, have integrity, and turn down collaborations that don't work. Collaborations that don't work are the ones where the brands um, want to use an artist kind of like as an interior designer or decorator. Again, my respects to those who are interior designers or decorators. but. I don't want to be a part of a relationship where I basically, you know, I'm using my work to uh, to justify, legitimate, or or in any way, shape, or form, uh, not contribute. I believe in contribution, and. BMW is a rare company as you may know they have a big tradition of working with other artists artists that I admire like Jenny Holzer or Robert Rauschenberg or there's mm. so many examples of how they've managed to collaborate with artists while respecting their integrity and that's that's what I'm hoping is going to happen in Basel.
0: Amazing. Well, we're going to get on to our final questions that we ask every guest that comes on. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, but we'd like to make it BMW-centric. So if you could do a BMW art car heist, and you just mentioned Jenny Holzer, but obviously there's been like Andy Warhol, Jeff Koons recently, Alexander Calder. There's been a lot of the years. If you could steal any one of them cars nicely, you wouldn't get in trouble. What, which car would it be and why?
2: I, it would be Jenny Holzer. I mean, I think that her work is uh, such a beacon of of you know of social responsibility, of poetry, the usage of light and electronics. She's never shied away from that. So this would be a, a, a spirit that, that I would like to uh, to uh, to be around. So I would I would take her car.
1: Yeah, and also there's a real connection between you and Holzer because I remember there was a quote you said once about how technology can move forward beyond functional design to evoke wonder and that it's a poetic interpretation of how human and technology will interact in the future. And I really think that that sort of idea is very within her work as well and trying to bring about change and social change through art, making people think and wake up.
2: That's right, and I think that ultimately I'm looking now at the car. So, so it was just decals, but Mm there, you know, it's a beautiful piece. It says, "Protect me from what I want," and Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's one of her key uh, statements, right? That she had, you know, has perhaps what best known for that. Protect me from what I want is just such a beautiful call for today. You know, in consumer society, we're just, uh, you know, always, always needing more, always needing to to look for happiness in in purchases. So I really like uh, I like the circularity of that work. Um, but yeah, just to go back to her, I mean, I think that art needs to be a disruption, right? I think that art needs to convince us to not be complacent and uh, and to ask questions. Um, any artwork um, that I'm interested in is an artwork that is out of control. It's an artwork that has its own emergent behavior and phenomena, and uh, the, the Francis Bacon used to say that we won't know for 40 years what is uh, worthwhile artwork. It takes a while, you know, one must try to do a bunch of shit, but it's only 40 years later that we can look back and say, okay, that seemed to be a contribution. Um, so stay stay humble and uh, and just keep trying um, to... And, and stay tuned. And to, Stay humble yeah, stay and stay tuned. tuned. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the other question we ask every guest is, um, what's the best advice you've ever received in terms of your art and art making?
2: Um, meditate. Meditate. Um... I've been, I fought meditation for so long. Everybody told me, Raphael, you are ADHD. You're a workaholic. You, What you need to do is find meditation. And I'm like, shut up. Like, what are you really talking about? And then finally COVID, <laughs> COVID came in. I got COVID pretty bad. And I started meditating and it's like, Oh, you know what? They're, they're onto something. This whole breathing thing I used to hate, like, you know, don't ask me to take a deep breath. You know, panting is the correct evolutionary solution to the problem I have right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not about breathing. It's about breathing out. And uh, I think that, yeah, it's I, I know everybody knows how good meditation is, but I found out late and I wish I had heard that um, advice earlier.
0: It's quite fascinating when you work with the human breath. At times, <laughs> <laughs> that you're so reluctant to like realize its potentials beyond art. I suppose. Um, what is your yeah, favorite really- color? What's your favorite color, Raphael?
2: Uh probably black.
0: Oh, why? That's a yeah. rare one.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I um, I've said in the past that I um, I really like the. Um, Uh, The idea that light is not spiritual, like oftentimes when you think of the masters of art, uh, of light art, people like Terrell or Flavin or or Irwin. I mean, it's all about this kind of expression of an inner light. uh, I believe Terrell was a Quaker or is a Quaker, um, which is lovely. I mean, I think this is beautiful work, but I come more from a darker place. I come from the light of interrogation, the light that blinds you the light of explosions, of the solar explosions that make life. I like the, this violent light because I think it's it's an unexplored side of light. Like, for example, the choppers, um, you know, with search, looking for Mexicans at the border. I like to think about light not necessarily as this pure and beautiful thing. And so black is the absence of light. And I think that it presents us for a beautiful default. It presents us with uh, depth, um, and, um, and of course it's, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's all potential.
0: It's all the colors.
2: Yeah. Right. Depends if it's additive or subtractive, but yeah, it's all. Yeah, of yeah, it. yeah.
0: There you go. There's your science brain. <laughs> picking me up. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. This has been I- incredible. Um, yeah, this is uh, the first presentation. Pulse topology. Maybe there'll be more beyond, but it's going to be seen the first time in Europe uh, at Basel, and then the interior of the BMW i7, which you're working on. Um, the and
1: actually, we we actually got to ride uh, the prototype of the i7 last week, and it is such a cool car and yeah. we were both so chilled out in there and it's they've made an amazing vehicle actually and yeah it's very futuristic it's super cool yeah it
0: was very uh, very cozy a very sensory even environment even the
1: Hans Zimmer like soundtrack and stuff there's all these like noises that happen that Hans Zimmer's actually engineered the uh, the uh, soundtrack you know legendary musician so yeah it was very cool
0: it's very cool but, um, yeah, so for everyone listening, please go to uh, at art and we'll be posting images of today's episode. Are you on Instagram, Raphael? I am, yeah, Lozano Hammer. Lozano uh, Hammer, Lozano brilliant. Hammer. Yeah. And you can and, also
1: uh, go to at superblue.art and at BMW Group Culture and also at Art Basel <laughs> and hashtag Pulse Topology. During the fair in June, they're actually going to be, um, if you go on that hashtag, you'll be able to see all the live um, photos and people will be posting their own images. It's going to be a really inclusive um, artwork. I cannot wait to be part of it myself and get to meet you in person. It's going to be brilliant.
0: Same. Very excited. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Raphael. Thank you for Thanks, listening, guys. everyone. And we'll be Bye, Raphael. Take care. Thank you. Hey. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye.